This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today to be speaking with Naomi McDougall-Jones about her fabulous book titled The Wrong Kind of Women, Inside Our Revolution to Dismantle the Gods of Hollywood, published by Beacon Press in 2020. This is a brutally honest, in a lot of ways data-driven, though there's also fabulous interviews that we're going to get into, um, look at the systematic exclusion of women in film, particularly at the American film industry, um, an industry with rather a lot of cultural influence, to examine where women are, where women aren't, both in front of and behind the camera, um, to figure out what can be done to make the voices of women um, more a part of this system. Um, So without giving anything else away, uh, Naomi, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Miranda. Before we dive into the book, could you maybe introduce yourself a bit and explain why you decided to write this? Sure. Um, I got to the point where I have so many job titles that I've just condensed it down to storyteller and change maker. <laughs> um, but to get a little deeper into that, uh, I'm a 15-time award-winning filmmaker, um, writer, actress, producer. Uh, I am the founder of the 51 Fund, which is a private equity fund to finance films by female filmmakers. Um, I did a TED talk, uh, about women in film on the same subject as the book that went viral, um, amidst the Harvey Weinstein meltdown and, um, has been viewed over 1.6 million times. Um, I, uh, obviously wrote a book as well. I'm writing another book. Um, so I do a lot of different things, um, as a, as a storyteller and, and activist and change maker. And uh, the way this book came about, so I always uh, make the joke that my career is a little bit like that magician's trick where they ask you to pull one handkerchief out of a hat and then it's connected to another handkerchief and another handkerchief. It just seems to keep going that way. So I started off life as an actress. Um, That's what I went to college for. That's the thing I most wanted to be in the world. Um, And I graduated from acting school and, um, you know, got out and was pounding the pavement in New York City and getting hired and acting a lot in theater and more in film and television, um, but got very quickly disillusioned by the roles that were available for women. Um, In hindsight, also, by the way, I was being treated as an actress, although at the time I sort of took all of that in as just like what it takes to be an actress. Um, But, you know, a lot of sexual harassment and bad situations and uh, demeaning behavior. Um, but sort of naively 
because I'd been raised in this very feminist household to believe that, you know, those battles had been fought and won and women can do anything men could do. I just, I was sort of bewildered and gobsmacked by what I was experiencing as an actress. And so naively thought, well, the problem must just be that people aren't writing great roles for women. I could write great roles for women. Um, So I became a screenwriter and uh, a filmmaker and we made my first film, uh, Imagine I'm Beautiful. And in the course of making that film, was when the penny really dropped for me to begin understanding the levels of sexism entrenched in in the filmmaking industry because we would just have the most mind exploding conversations like people saying to us well well girls you know that you're going to need to get a male producer on board at some point just so that people will trust you with their money this was in 2011 um And just sort of this never-ending refrain from people of, oh, well, people don't want to see films about women. You're going to have to make something else. Which just, I mean, even as somebody with an associate's degree in acting, I could do the math of, well, women are 51% of the population. They probably want to see movies about themselves. Probably some portion of men also want to see um, films about about women, some some number of men. So like it doesn't, the math just doesn't make sense on its face that nobody wants to see films about women as everyone kept saying to us. Um, So I was just so appalled and indignant about what we were experiencing that when we did make the film, I will say without a male producer and we somehow managed to handle the money ourselves, um, at Q and A's after the screenings of the film, I just started talking about what we'd experienced because it was so amazingly crazy. And I just, it, you know, and it seemed kind of hard to remember at this point, but thinking back, you know, the film came out in 2013, which was three years before Me Too. And, you know, at that time, people really weren't talking about what was going on. You know, a couple of very brave people were in pockets, but they were mostly getting silence or not amplified. And so it just seemed to me like, this is what's going on to everybody I know who's a woman in the industry, but but audiences of films and consumers of films don't know that this is happening. Um, so I just felt sort of compelled to tell them in Q&As after, the, after screenings of the film. And because of that, very quickly got put on the international speaking circuit talking about this, which it, I didn't really realize until later was because most people were afraid to talk about these things. And I just didn't know I should be afraid initially. Um, Because it seemed like, how could you possibly have to be afraid for just telling the truth? Um, But, you know, not too far into that international speaking career with this, I was told in no uncertain terms by a number of people, including an Oscar winning female producer, that if I didn't stop talking about these things out loud, that I would never have a career and that I would be blacklisted, Um, which... I'm I'm the sort of person who, if you tell me that, <laughs> gets really mad and goes, "Well, now I'm definitely going to talk about it." Um, so I kept talking about it, and that eventually led to to this te- to the opportunity to give this TED talk, which then, as I said, went viral. Um, and it was in the middle of that sort of moment that uh, an agent, Mark Gottlieb, reached out to me and said, "I I just saw your talk, and um, I don't know if you've considered turning it into a book, but." Um, if you want to, I would be ha- I would be interested in representing you to sell it, um, which, you know, I'd never written a book, but I sort of figured if somebody asks you that, you say yes and figure it out later, uh, which is what I did. <laughs> and I, <laughs> and then I, I uh, 
I was very lucky to sell the book um, from a a book proposal to to Beacon Press and to the editor, Rakia Clark, who's a brilliant genius, um, and got to write the book from there. And I did figure it out. Amazing. Thank you for taking us um, through that journey. I think it's very easy to see a book on a shelf at a bookstore and go, oh, that's shiny. That's lovely. That's polished. That must be always what it started like, right? Um, and actually kind of hearing the process of what well, it was, you know, this thing, and then that made me realize that thing, and then this, um, that kind of all built up. And in a lot of ways, um, hearing your story in particular makes a lot of sense, having read the book myself, because a lot of what you're doing in the book is building up this story. It's kind of going, hang on a second, we're not talking about this, let's sort of poke at it. And let's poke at it systematically with data um, going beyond sort of, you know, and there is obviously a place for like long form investigative journalism of a particular person's experience, but there's very much also something bigger that needs to be done to understand it on a systemic level. Um, and in a lot of ways, I sort of found your book kind of building blocks of it. Okay, so first let's look at this piece and figure that out. Great, now let's go look at this piece. Ooh, look, if we put them together, hmm, okay. Um, so I'm definitely not going to do as good a job um, illuminating those building blocks as you've done in the book, but we'll see if we can at least highlight um, kind of some of the pieces. And I'd like to start um, with this idea of kind of, well, this is what it takes to be an actress. Because as we're finding out, um, there's a lot of really horrible shared experiences. And in fact, some of the horror is in how much they are shared um, amongst women trying to be actresses. So you talk about a number of barriers, obviously, but one of them in particular seems to be kind of at the core of it. What is the spiritual double bind that women who want to be actresses are faced with? The best way I've ever come up to describe this is um, if you think about Crayola crayon boxes. Um, I assume you have those in the UK as well. Um, so, you know, you can get the Crayola box that's like five colors and it's just the primary colors. And then if you're a really lucky kid, you get like the 42 pack with all the different shades of colors and everything. Um, so when roles are written at the moment for men versus women in movies, the the male roles are drawn from the crayol are from, drawn from the forty two pack, <laughs> so there are still kinds of like you know archetypes of male characters. There are still you know you recognize certain thematic things that tie male characters together, but but you get this really beautifully complex broad spectrum of all different types of men, and for women you get about five. <laughs> maybe 10. And if you're a woman of color, you get maybe two. Um, and so as an actress, you know, a, a big thing that you learn in acting school and, and acting classes are sort of what they call typing exercises. So you have to sort of figure out like what your type is. Um, meaning, you know, how, if you walk into an audition room, how are they going to perceive you? What are the kinds of roles that if you go out for, you know, the person casting it is going to wreck, is going to be like, yes, you're right for that part. And so the problem is that in real life, women are as complex and as diverse and as nuanced in as, me as many different ways as men are. And so therefore actresses are. But then when you're trying to go up for roles, you, 
everybody's comparing you to this five pack of Crayola crayons, which most of us are not really going to match. And so what the industry starts telling you as a young woman or any woman trying to be an actress, they start trying to, to get you to become one of those five colors. Um, that they, they'll say things like, well, if you just, you know, the thing my agent said to me once was, well, if you could just dye your hair blonde, I, I, you can't see me, but I have red hair. You could dye your hair blonde and straighten your teeth and lose five pounds and, um, figure out how to not lead so quite so much with your intelligence, then I know exactly how we could get you cast in things. And it's like, so if I was just a different person, if I was not myself, um, oh, and a boob job, if I was just not myself, then then I would be one of these five colors of Crayola crayons you have. Um, but it's but it's very tough because this agent was not wrong. He was not mistaken. Casting directors didn't really know what to do with me because I didn't fit. I wasn't I wasn't one of the five colors. Um, and so the spiritual double bind as an actress is you kind of have this choice of either you can get the boob job, you can get your nose shrunk, your teeth straightened, you you know, all the things and, and mold yourself into this person that you maybe are not, um, but which will get you cast maybe, right? Not, not guaranteed, but might get you cast, which is the other downfall of this situation. Or you can decide to be yourself and probably never really have a career. And this problem incident is worth saying is much worse for women of color. Um, but it's, it's bad for women overall. And so it's kind of a damned if you do damned if you don't situation, because if you stay true to yourself, you may never have the career that you wish you could have. But if you do, you know, tr transform yourself in that way, sometimes it works out, but I've seen it kind of um, like spiritually kill a lot of women because it's really it does something to you at a very deep level to, to transform yourself into someone that you're not and to feel like that's the only way you can be worthy of being chosen. That's a really, uh, that's a thing that I've seen break a lot of people. And it's even worse than if you do that and you still don't get cast. Um, but even if you do get cast, you know, it's, it's a really, it's a really painful and kind of shattering thing. Well, and I think it's worth um, highlighting something you talk about in the book that uh, of these five Crayola colors, um, at least on the women's side, uh, they may or may not any of them have be real. There may not actually be any woman in reality that would fit them. Um, Absolutely. Right. It's sort of like the male fantasies of what, of what women are, which is why, uh, you know, almost every actress is told well, you have to do X, Y, and Z to become like this male idea of what a woman is. So that obviously, in a lot of ways, implies the title of the book, right? The wrong kind of women. Um, and implies that there is a right kind. So we've got some idea of what that is. It's one of these five Crayola colors that may or may not exist in reality. Okay. Um, but there's more than that. There's more that goes into being the right kind of woman and more that explains exactly why it seems to be pretty impossible to achieve. Can you walk us through that? Yeah, I mean, so the the wrong and right kind of women do apply to, you know, actresses and the characters on screen, but they but it also applies more broadly to the kinds of women that the industry likes um, to hire, whether it's in front of or behind the camera. Um, certainly, uh, 
young, white, and beautiful <laughs> is uh, is a good uh, generalization of that. But but it's also it's also a matter of pliability, right? Intelligence is bad. Um, you know, eagerness is good. Uh, you know, being the kind of woman who you know a lot of female directors in particular will not be hired again, even if, um, you know, their, their film is commercially successful because somebody says that they're quote unquote difficult, which if you compare (laughs) a a woman who is called difficult to, you know, Quentin Tarantino or uh, Stanley Kubrick, or these men who literally terrorize and emotionally scar women on sets, you can see that there's a little bit of a double standard. You know, a man's visionary, a woman is difficult um, when she's not terrorizing and emotionally scarring people on her set. Um, so, you know, it's it's the it's the women who will sort of go along to get along, who will, um, you know, accept the power dynamic of being constantly underneath um, and, uh, yeah, being young, white and beautiful certainly helps. I'd love to ask you a bit more about that young aspect um, because you've talked about acting school. Seems like kind of a relevant thing in many professions. You go to school in order to become a thing um, and that the schooling, you know, is a literally a helping stone to achieve those goals. Um, but acting school is university or college often, uh, which is when you are young. So the young thing and the training thing and the kind of malleability of it seems to be something at odds here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, I get into the the statistics of this in my book, but um, there's you might have heard the the adage 10 years for an overnight success. Um, and that tends to be pretty true. So from the time somebody starts working to the time that they become very visibly successful, if they do, is usually about 10 years. Um, but the difficulty about that for women is that uh, the the largest number of roles for women are characters in their early 20s. Um, and the largest number of roles for men are in their 30s and 40s. So if you're an actress, um, in order to sort of hit that curve at the appropriate age, you basically have to start in the industry when you're an early tween or early teenager, um, before you've had training, I mean, you might've had, you know, young child training, but, uh, you know, not, as you say, you haven't been to university, you haven't gotten to have real training. Um, and so you kind of have to get on that curve when you are at your absolute most vulnerable point in life, when you're a teenager, when you already don't believe in yourself, when you're already having body issues, when you're already, you know, willing to sort of, not everybody, but, you know, many teenage girls willing to sort of accept bad power dynamics as just the way things are. Um, And so that, and then you crest in your early twenties, you know, peak, peak at your mid twenties. And then by the time you get to your, your late twenties, you're kind of on your way out because there just aren't that many roles for women. Um, Until then you're, you wait several decades and are old enough to play somebody's mother. Um, And so that that creates this pool of of the most famous actresses who are extremely vulnerable who have never really had the time to like grow into full 
fully um, possessed human beings outside of the industry before getting caught up in all this nonsense um, and have in many cases never received very serious acting training. And so that also impacts their ability to have longevity in their careers. Um, whereas men, <laughs> uh, so, so basically if in many ways, if you're a, an actress and you go to university to acting school to get the training, you've kind of already missed the window. But for men, because the big, the largest number and the best roles are available in your 30s and 40s and even into your 50s, you can have this leisurely pace of having a normal childhood, a normal teenagerhood. You can go to university, you can study, um, you can get out, you can have your 10 years, um, and you can you can crest right at the appropriate you know early 30s age, and then have a many decade career to follow. Thank you for explaining that. I think that was one of the um, most interesting kind of, oh, wait, hadn't put those things together. As soon as I do, yeah, mm, okay, that looks like a structural problem, um, not a personality one, um, which goes to kind of one of the arguments you make in the book, uh, that obviously when we're looking at kind of where does this problem come from, it would be very easy to kind of go, ah, it is this thing. There we go. That's the problem. Great. Let's get rid of it. Um but instead, your investigation very much shows you that, uh, quote, Hollywood is not crushing women so much as bleeding them out. And I think this is obviously really important because we can't kind of understand the scale of the problem if we think it's all down to one thing. So could you tell us a bit about kind of what you mean by this and what it looks like? What people often, as you say, want the problem to look like <laughs> is that like some evil mustache twirling man in a castle, like a woman comes in and he says, you can't be in the industry because you're a woman or whatever. And then like, and, and that's, and it, she just gets crushed instantaneously and that's it. But of course that's not how life actually works. Um, and so it's really through, you know, they, they talk a lot about the 10,000 cuts, you know, with racism or sexism. And it's really that it's like, most women that I know come out of the gate, come out of school, assuming that they're on that they ha they're on a level playing field. Maybe they assume that a little bit less these days, but but certainly when I got out of school in two thousand eight, this was true. Um, and and so and and like you expect it to be hard, right? Because this is also part of this myth, this mythology around the starving artist and the struggling artist, and this is going to be hard, and you're going to have to have thick skin. And so, as horrible things happen to you, um, I think the first response is often, "That's okay. I can take it. I have thick skin," right? Which is a source of pride, is is a cultivated source of pride in the culture, um, and then what begins to happen is people start telling you why you specifically are the problem. So if you're an actress, again, like, well, if you just had bigger boobs or blonder hair or were less intelligent or had straighter teeth or whatever, then, then you would be chosen. Um, as, a film, as a filmmaker, it's like, well, if you could just, um, you know, write the kinds of plot that we recognize as... Um, you know, valid. Like I once had this uh, cinematographer that I was considering hiring for my first movie who had worked on Law and Order for many years. It was like kind of an old system guy uh, spend the, the full hour that I was supposed to be interviewing him explaining to me why if I really wanted to understand how plot worked, I needed to watch Law and Order. 
Um, and at the time it was kind of devastating, but in hindsight, I've come to realize that, you know, without really realizing it, I was writing out into this different frontier of what cinema, what storytelling can look like from a female perspective. And he saw that and he went, no, that's not right. You know, he didn't say, oh, I see that you're trying this new thing. It's like, no, that doesn't match what is. Um, and so you have sort of just this endless series of these conversations. Oh, nobody wants to see films about women. Oh, that's not right. But it's it's always explaining why you personally are the problem. And usually it's not one moment. Usually it's just the weight of that adding up over the years. It's noticing that your male colleagues somehow keep getting opportunities that you don't. Um, it's, it's, it's maybe not even noticing that in the moment, but 10 years into a career looking around and going, wait a minute, why are they here and here and here? And why am I still here? Well, it must just be that I'm not good enough. And it becomes very easy to buy into the narrative that you're being told. And then just at a certain point to throw in the towel and say, I can't do this or I can't economically make this work because I'm not getting the higher paying jobs. Um, or like, I guess I'm not good enough. I guess I should just go do something else. Or, you know, that you just, again, this sort of image of women just bleeding out of the system. Um, and one of the most common emails I've received since this book came out is from women who have told that story, who have said, you know, I, I, I went into the film industry to have a career as X, Y, or Z. And after, you know, 10, 20 years, I left because I, because, because I thought I wasn't good enough. And, and the email always says, and it wasn't until reading your book that I understood that it wasn't just me, that it was a system that was not built for me. And, like I lost this career because of that. And and what they often say is if someone had just explained to me on day on the day I was leaving college what I was going to face, I think I could have lasted because at least I would have understood that these things were not my fault, that it was a system that I was fighting. Um, but, you know, that that hasn't been true, again, because it hadn't been talked about because, you know, you know, people just kept sort of writing off these anecdotal personal stories, um, you know, and it's only now that we're really putting this data together at large scale. Well, and especially the idea of the system being against, the system's not built for us, uh, was fascinating to see in the book that the system, it hasn't always been this way. Um, that when we go back historically to the silent film era, um, we don't see necessarily women running the show, but we certainly see a lot more women involved in numbers that we quite literally have not seen anything close to since, both in front of and behind the camera. So what was different about the system then that enabled it and how and why did it change? Yeah. So I just want to say that again, because it is so staggering. So in the early 1900s, there were a greater percentage of women writing, directing, producing, owning studios of film than at any point since then. That is just so wild. Um, so it was kind of a number of conditions. Uh, one being that, you know, at a certain point in, in the film's history, men were away fighting World War I um, and then World War II, and they just weren't around, right? So there were a lot of industries where women suddenly got in the door because um, 
the men literally weren't there. Um, but I think probably the bigger piece is that at first film, people thought film was kind of a weird little hobby. Like nobody really, the, the reason they went to, you know, the desert in California to, to create Hollywood was not because it was a center of anything, but because it was nowhere because, um, you know, it was like some weird outpost that eventually became the center of things. But so there was this feeling about it that, oh, well, it's it's not that it's fine for women to muddle around with that because, you know, it's not it's not an industry. There's not money to be made. It's just this weird little flash in the pan hobby that will be around for a little while and then be gone. And what changed um, in the 40s, uh, aside from the men coming back from the war, is that, uh, well, first the first thing that happened is that talkies came about so so the era of sound came into film um and actually partly created by women the the woman who the person who invented the boom microphone which is a key piece of how you can have sound in films um it was a woman um but anyway sound came into films and then uh and that's when it really began to catch fire as a cultural uh, institution and, and where people really started paying attention in the mainstream. And so wall street suddenly went, wait a minute, (laughs) we're going to be able to make money on this. This is going to be a real industry. Um, and they went to the, the studios that the men were in charge of in Hollywood. And they literally said there, you can, you can read letters to this effect saying, um, okay, we see we see what this is. We see that this is going to be a serious business, and we will invest the capital to make this an industry, a global industry. But you have to get the women out because obviously <laughs> the same thing that somebody said to me in a room in 2011, because obviously you can't trust women with money. Um, so if this is going to be a real business, you're going to have to get them out. And that is precisely what happened. So from an era where um, women were, you know, if not majority, at least, you know, in the, you know, 40, 40 percentage range of participation in the film industry, um, they went down to less than one half of 1% of writers and directors from 1945 till 1978, um, which was the first time that somebody really looked into this and began making a stink about it the first time. Um, so yeah, it was pretty, pretty successful. The excision of women from Hollywood. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. So take us up then to today, right? You gave us a great uh, question earlier in the interview. Hang on a second. The population is 50% women. Surely that means that there's a decent percentage of the population. If we can make some assumptions that potentially not all women would be interested, but potentially some men might be. Okay, We're looking at some decent numbers here of people who might be interested in films 
about women, maybe films made by women, maybe films featuring female characters, you know, there might be a market for that. Um, so why don't those films get made? Um, well, the, but the, the, the simple answer to that question is power. Um, because we've known since at least the 80s that films by and about women do make more money, dollar for dollar spent. So this is an extraordinary thing that I found out in the course of researching this book. So before writing this book and before doing my TED Talk, I had I had gotten together the data about present films. So I knew that films, at least from the 2000s on, that had a female writer, director, or producer um, made more money dollar for dollar spent than films with men in those roles, um, and significantly more. I mean, like 14, 20, uh, 18, and 21 cents more on every dollar spent. That's real money that's being left on the table there. Um, so, you know, I, I was running around touting this data thinking, oh, well, they must just not know this, right? <laughs> like if they knew how much money they could be making, you know, we, we live in capitalism, late stage capitalism, money is the most important thing. If they knew that they could be making money on these things, they would definitely be doing it. But as the years went on and we kept running around with this data and nothing was changing, we start going, wait a minute, what? <laughs> like, you said nobody wanted to see these movies. We're saying people do want to see these movies and there's money to be made. Why are you not doing this? And then in the course of researching this book, um, my mentor, Jack Lechner, who used to work for Miramax, he was a studio executive uh, in the, the 90s. And he said that he told me this story about how in the late 80s and 90s, there was this one data guy who was like the guy that all the Hollywood executives relied on for data. So, you know, he would go out and collect all the box office data and be like, okay, you need to make a horror film about X, Y, and Z in order to make money. And they would all do that. So, they, I mean, they would literally trust the decisions about what kinds of movies they were making on this one guy. And one day that guy said to himself, huh, I wonder what the most lucrative audience member is. Who, who, what is the demographic of that person? Um, and so he looked at all of his data and he went, huh, the most lucrative audience member, and this was in the 90s, is a 13-year-old girl, which all of the conventional wisdom at the time said that, that teenage boys were the most lucrative um, audience members. That's what all the executives said. And so this the trusted data guy went to all of the executives and he said, guys, you're not going to believe this. We've been totally wrong about this. If you want to make the most money, you should actually be making movies for 13 year old girls. And the studio executive said, huh, that doesn't sound right. That can't possibly be true. And they went on making the kinds of movies they were making. Um, so what that tells you is that in this system, the only thing that is more important than money is power. And that the people for whom this system is working, it is working very well. And they get to make the kinds of movies that they like. And they like getting to make the kinds of movies they like, and they like getting paid a lot of money to do that. And they like the way the system runs. And they actually don't want it to be different. Um, so, you know, for all this talk about, oh, young lady, this is a business, and we just have to follow the numbers. The reality is, 
that it's actually about power and prestige and the people in charge not wanting to lose those things. Yeah, I thought it was about both. And then I read that bit and was like, hmm, hang on a second. This one makes more money. Wait a second. Okay. Um, I mean, I I think they love situations where it can be both. But I think this proves that when push comes to shove, um, power is more important than money. Well, speaking of when push comes to shove, um, you are thankfully not the only person in the world um, having this conversation, despite the difficulties in having it. And you point to in the book a fascinating um, sort of fact, I guess, that a lot of people started to come together and have this conversation or parts of this conversation pretty much at the same time, um, which is always really interesting when that happens. So why was it that 2011... Why was it in 2011 that various different grassroots organizations started to come together to go, hang on a second, am I the only one having this experience? Yeah. Well, the simplest answer is social media. Um, And that, you know, there, there are so many movements that we've seen play out over the last decade and 15 years that basically come back down to that simple answer, which is that all of these people who had been in silos, who had been having these experiences privately, um, suddenly were able to find each other and were able to post, you know, had this forum in which to post about their experiences. And suddenly that gets reshared and somebody else goes, wait a minute. Um, me too. Right. Um, and so social media was a huge part of that. I think, um, you know, venues like YouTube were a huge part of that. That was another place that people, you know, vlogging became such a thing. And, you know, people were just able to speak their mind. And then they'd find other people who were like, wait a minute, I'm having that experience too. And so this, it's through these mediums, the shift started happening from, oh, this is my personal experience to, um, oh, wait a minute, (laughs) everyone's having this experience. Maybe there's something bigger going on here. Um, And I think there's another sort of generational component to that, which is, you know, there were a lot of people like me, you know, I'm about to turn 36, who were raised by um, the, the women who, you know, led the last big feminist wave. And, you know, I think a lot of women like me were raised by those mothers to believe that the world had been made equal and, you know, ventured out into the world, (laughs) uh, you know, and then ran smack into this brick wall of reality. And so I think there's also sort of a timing thing of, of when did we come of age? When did we get out of school? And then what was the time lag between that and and running and realizing what the reality of the world was and then deciding, you know, to do something about it? So I think it was it was sort of a number of factors came together around that time. Um, hmm. to, to, to create that. And then certainly in the US, you, you, so 2011 was when these things the conversation started, which was actually really good timing because then when Donald Trump got elected in the United States, which then just lit, you know, the women of the, some of the women of the country on fire. uh, And then me too happened. There was kind of this great, like, um, I'm about to make a sports analogy, which is never a good idea, but you don't volleyball where you're like somebody lofts the ball into the air and somebody else spikes it. That was sort of 2011 began to loft the ball in the air. And then 2016, we, we spiked it. Mm. 
thank you for kind of taking us through those components um, to sort of understand how it all came together, starting from that time. Um, my next question is perhaps, I don't know, I initially thought of it, uh, it was something I was curious about reading the book um, as someone who does not work in the film industry. And I sort of assumed it was a question that maybe would be kind of dumb to someone who does know how film works and thinks about these things kind of, you know, with lots of years of experience. And I was really interested to read the book that it seems like maybe these things are not always necessarily talked about or articulated, um, which kind of made me even more eager to ask it. Um, You've mentioned these stats, right? That it makes a difference financially to have a female director or a female writer or a female producer. Um, And we can see that if we're looking at like the statistics for who gets awards and things like that. But beyond the numbers of awards or of money, kind of what difference does it make? How how does it make a difference with the gender of the director or the writer of the producer on the people involved in the film, in what kinds of films are made? Like, I how do we understand sort of the impact of that one person's gender? Yeah, this is not a dumb question at all. And is in fact, I think one of the most complex and nuanced questions that I have to answer in this whole thing, because, you know, I have women say to me, even women in the industry say to me, well, like such and such male director directed X film and it's terrific portrayal of women. And it's like, yes, occasionally that happens. But so so I'll answer it from both sides because they're 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 connected but different answers. So there's the process question of how does having a female director in charge of a film set matter? And then how does it affect the the, the resulting film? Um, and I guess I'll preface all of this by saying that, you know, the gender conversation keeps evolving. And I think the reality is that all of us contain um, feminine and masculine qualities. Uh, I think there are women who are more masculine than some men. Uh, I think there are, you know, it's all a spectrum. Um, So when I say, if a woman does X, we've seen it play out that it's certainly true that there are women who are more toxic than men. Uh, we've seen women who basically, you know, just continue on the patriarchal storytelling and, and tropes. So I'm going to speak in terms of men and women, but I, I am talking about something more nuanced underneath that. So I'm, what I'm saying is that women are more likely to have these qualities and men are more likely to have these qualities. Um, but that is obviously a, a much more nuanced thing. Um, but that being said... In terms of the the film, a film is uh, is the projection and representation of of what reality is to the people who made it, and most critically, the the writer, the director, and the editor, and and shaped by the producer. Um, if you think about how different the experience of one day is for a woman versus a man. And everything they perceive about the world differently, everything they experience about the world differently, um, it's it's vast and nuanced and complex, the, 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 the difference in those perspectives and experiences. And so there are sort of like clear things I can point to. Like I think in general, men think in a much more linear 
way. And I think the the way that films are constructed, what we're told as as a quote unquote good structure for a film is the three act structure. This is the thing that's taught in every school, which is basically it's it's highly linear and there's a situation, a problem arises and you solve the problem. And the good thing is solving the problem. Um, to me, that's a highly male way of thinking about A, about storytelling, what makes good storytelling, and B, about um, like what values you're upholding and, um, you know, saying are good about a human being, right? To take action and solve a problem. And like, and, you know, I joke, I can't count how many times I've screamed at my husband in our kitchen. Like, I don't want you to solve the problem. I just want you to listen. I think women in general um, are much less linear, are much uh, often think about things in much more circular or um, like web-like patterns. Um, so, you know, I don't think a group of women would have come up with the three-act structure as the good way to write a movie. Um, and, you know, one of the main things I'm working on right now with my own work and other talking about with other women is what is what is a basic structure of a female story in the in cinema? And the reality is we don't know because we've never really had the chance. I mean, we we briefly had the chance in the silent film era, but the medium was so new at that point. But since then, we've never had a chance where a lot of us have had the resources to actually be able to uh, be making films and and asking these questions and, and have the awareness to not just fall into, oh, well, they say a three-act structure is good, so that's what we're going to do. So, so there's the... There's the sort of concrete things like structure, but then there's just terribly, terribly nuanced differences in how how we experience and perceive the world. Um, I think in some ways the best way to, to notice this is to watch a film by a female director who who really has escaped the the system. Like um for me personally, my my the the example of this that I watched the movie and and my whole body lit up because like that that is truly different. That is a truly female way of telling a story. Uh, is Portrait of a Lady on Fire by Celine Sciamma. Um, but obviously that's just a personal thing. There there are plenty of other women you know doing that work that might speak to other women's experiences, and that's the point, right? We're very complex and diverse and. Um, but so there, there's it's a very nuanced thing of how does it change the story, which is why when, um, you know, more and more female characters have been put on screen in films direct, you know, since Me Too and the whole outcry, there there are more female characters and more sort of strong female characters on screen. And even as the as the numbers behind the camera, as the as the directors and writers and editors have changed very little. And, you know, I constantly get you know, men in the industry going, why are you still yelling about this? We're putting you have lots of strong female characters. And I'm like, no, it's so much more complicated. Like you can't, you can't just, it's the perspective that has to shift. It's the person you have to make room for this totally different perspective. Um, so that's in terms of, of the stories themselves. And, and what's exciting about that is that I believe that we are in a period now even though it's happening mostly in, in indie film um, and mostly on the fringes right now, we are we are finally in that period that I'm describing, sort of the primordial ooze settings of um, 
resources and numbers of women where we're actually getting to do these experiments and and see each other's work and be inspired by it and try something else and push you know push each other forward so there's this whole new frontier of cinema where at a time when you know we're just feel like we're seeing endless remakes and reboots and we've seen everything there's actually this whole new avenue opening of what cinema can be um which is very exciting so that's in terms of the stories and then in terms of set um the first thing to say is that if you have a female director, you are way more likely statistically to end up with more women further down, you know, in every aspect of the cast and crew. Um, so, you know, I started this film fund, the 51 Fund of Finance, uh, films by female directors, specifically because I knew that by hiring, fem- by by giving resources to female directors, you instantly get more women in every part of the cast and crew. Not every time, obviously, but statistically much more of the time. And you're also more likely to end up with a racially diverse um, cast and crew. So there's that piece. Um, And then sets historically and currently have been incredibly toxic places. Um, That's not to say that every system of which men are in charge will become toxic, but this one certainly has. And when I say toxic, I mean, um, obviously there's the sexual assault and harassment we know about, but also there's just, you know, people die on sets all of the time because of a lack of respect for, um, for people. (laughs) Uh, there's, you know, a lot of, um, like screaming at people, just, just very bad, toxic, terrible treatment of people. Um, And I will say that every set I have personally been on that has been run by majority women in the writer, director, producer um, roles has been the polar opposite of that. It has been a, a, a collaborative space. It has been a kind space. It has been a respectful space. It has been a space that to me is the kind of environment that you would want to create to engender creativity, you know, where you feel safe, where you feel like you can take creative risks and and not be berated for them. You know, where if you fail, you can ex- you have the opportunity to fail and still be loved. Um, that's the kind of set I want to work on. And of course, I'm, I, I have no doubt that some combination of women could create an equally toxic set. But in my personal experience, uh, that tends to be far less often true. So we've been primarily talking about um, film, cinema, uh, and this idea of kind of different options and perhaps more uh, hopeful things at the fringes of it. Um, but I was really interested that you, for one section of the book, talked about television, um, because it seems like the story there, um, in terms of kind of areas of hope um, and inclusion, is actually a little bit different than film uh why is television somehow doing a at least a bit of a better job in this sense than film um i think it's a number of factors and i do i want to say they're not doing great right (laughs) they're they're nowhere close to parity but but the numbers are a bit better like so if if at this point we're sort of stalled out with female directors of film for instance being at about seven or eight percent in television, maybe they're creeping up to 17 percent. So again, like not fantastic, but significantly better. Um, I think it's a number of factors. For one, television has always been seen as being less prestigious, um, even though 
we're now in a period where realistically, probably a lot of the better storytelling is happening in television. It's still seen as sort of less prestigious. And in every sector of life, women are always more easily gain access to the jobs that have less prestige. Um, I think there's also just more jobs in television, which makes it uh, it makes it easier to sort of throw women a bone. Um, also, the format of television series, um, particularly, you know, you have a writer's room. You don't have just one writer. You have a writer's room. And you have not just one director. Usually you have a, a number of different directors throughout the season. Um, so it sort of creates this format where it's easy to, to, to like, um, particularly post me too, where the executives go, okay, well, we better hire at least one or two women in this season, or we're going to look really bad. I mean, then that's been the biggest benefit probably of me too, is the awareness that they should be ashamed of their decisions. Um, and, and, and that they might, that they stand a good chance of being publicly called out if they don't make those decisions. Um, but then I think the other piece is that the thing that is most needed to create real change in the system is people with actual power within that system standing up in a way that isn't just sort of cute and gets them laudits, but actually causes structural differences. Um, and there's been a shocking lack of that in general in the industry, largely because it's an industry where everyone's constantly afraid that they're going to be kicked out of the popular kids table, no matter how famous or powerful they are. Um, but within the television arena specifically, there are three individuals that I would most credit with taking a stand, and that's Shonda Rhimes, um, Ryan Murphy, and Ava DuVernay. And in each of those cases, they have said, they, they have made it a policy um, you know, to hire majority women, majority BIPOC, uh, you know, writers, directors, um, and, and they, they were powerful enough within the industry at that time that they could do that and nobody could really tell them not to. Um, Ava DuVernay is an amazing example of this. So one of the big hurdles to, to women getting hired in television to direct television specifically is that, um, most women get their start directing independent film because because that's the easiest access point. It's the thing you can do without having to wait for the system to pick you, which as we've discussed is unlikely to happen. So most women get their start directing, directing independent films. And there's been this feeling in television of, well, just because you can direct an independent film doesn't mean you can direct television, which on its own is kind of a weird idea because why not? <laughs> like, it's not that different. Um, but particularly because independent film is way harder because you're scrounging around for resources. So not only are you having to make the thing, but you're having to make it without good resourcing. So directing television where you actually have resources is not actually harder. It's easier. Um, but anyway, but that's been the, the, the barrier. And so what you know, female directors are constantly told as they try to break into television is, well, we can't hire you for television because you've never directed television. And of course, there's the question of, okay, but if you won't hire me to direct television, how can I ever direct television? Um, which is somehow a hurdle that just uh, exceptions are constantly made for men. So Ava DuVernay with her show Queen Sugar said, well, I came from independent film and I understand perfectly that if you can direct an independent film, you can absolutely direct television. So with Queen Sugar, she made it a goal to hire women who were first time television directors 
who, you know, had in the past directed independent film. And as a result of this, because she then gave them their first episode of television, they've been able to get hired for other television. So so just that one show and Ava DuVernay doing that alone has had a massive impact on the, the percentage of women directing uh, television overall because she she's letting them in through that uh, gateway. What a stunning example um, on a lot of levels uh, and leads nicely into my penultimate question. So convenient for me, as well as being deeply informative to our listeners. Um, obviously, most of us are not Ryan Murphy. Most of us are not Shonda Rhimes. Um, most of us do not have that kind of institutional power. What would you recommend people, other people in the industry, people in particular roles, the general public who might be listening to this? Um, what else can be done to improve the situation? Um, so if you are in the industry, whether you're a man or a woman, I think my first request is that you inform yourself about how this systemic exclusion has been happening and continues to happen. And whether that's reading my book or finding other resources, um, you, you need to understand the mechanics of how this happens because it is so subtle as we've said, it happens in moments over time, in small micro decisions that people think they're making that don't matter, and they do. Um, and the only, you know, you can only be part of shifting it if you understand how it works now. Um, and then, and then, once you understand that, you have to refuse to participate in it. Um, you know, if you are a man and you have a white man and you have privilege, I. In my opinion, it's part of your responsibility to use that privilege to um, to also stand up to how that system works and make sure that you are not participating in furthering the continuance of the system. Um, if you are a woman, I think it's important to understand these mechanics so that you so that you don't fall into that trap of just thinking it's you. And then and then I think you have to make a decision. You have to make the decision of am I going understanding what this is, am I going to try to succeed within the system anyway, seeing where the barriers are and strategically going after ways to get around them without um, giving away anything of myself that is going to shatter me, right? Um, how, do, how do I stay true to myself and find ways around these barriers strategically within the system, which I do think is possible? Um, or the other choice you can make, which is the choice I've made, is to say, actually, <laughs> I don't want to spend any time investing in that system. I don't want to spend any time trying to to change it. I, I did spend 10 years trying to change it. And now I just have decided that it's crumbling anyway, and we may as well just build a different one. Um, so there, because of all of the magic of the internet and, you know, the, the new way in which the globe is connected, it is entirely possible to um, to build a, a different system um, that, you know, at its at a cellular level is inclusive and non-toxic and, you know, is about the things that storytelling, in my opinion, should be about, which is, you know, moving culture forward and inspiring people and challenging people and touching their souls and not just the sheer pursuit of endless money and power and fame. Um, so, you know, I think the decision that everyone has to come up, every woman has to come up against is, am I going to try to to make this work for myself in the system, even understanding what it is, or am I going to, you know, 
join the rebellion <laughs> and uh, and just just try to you know make my stuff outside of the system. And then in terms of the general public, please be aware of what you're watching and what you're choosing to spend your dollars to watch. Um, it matters when you watch a film by a woman. It particularly matters if if you pay to watch a film by a woman. Um, and just even as a starting place, noticing the the gender and race and you know all all the intersections of the of the movies and shows that you are watching, and maybe if you notice that it's all pretty much one perspective, maybe just challenging yourself to even once a month try something that's a different perspective. Um, and then, and, and again, spending dollars on it. And this is a whole other conversation that we certainly don't have time for, but, um, you know, aside from, from the gender conversation, because of the dominance of the subscription streaming services, as well as the mass consolidation of, um, media corporations over the last five years, we're basically in a situation where five mega corporations are deciding what everybody watches more or less around the globe. Um, and to me, that's a very bad situation in terms of the role that storytelling has to play in a society. Um, so although I know it's hard to think about paying for stories that aren't on one of the subscription streaming services that you're already paying for, I would really urge you to seek out content outside of those services and maybe even cancel your subscription to those services and, and, and pay the $2.99 to rent something else. Um, because because th those something else are where the independent voices exist that I'm talking about. Um. That obviously gives us some idea of what you are working on or doing next. Um, but is there anything else you'd like our audience to be, anything more you'd like our audience to be aware of in terms of what you're up to? Yeah. Um, so I am really proud to have just joined... Um, in partnership uh, with a, an Indigenous impact producer in Canada who, by the name of Charlene Sanjanko um, on a company that we will now co-run called Regen Media. Um, and the goal of this company is to be a full, a fully contained and sustainable self-contained eject pod from the current film industry. <laughs> um, so uh, we have a model, a, a, a radically different model to finance, make and distribute films entirely outside of the Hollywood system and without ever needing to rely on it. Um, it, it through a process that we're calling relational filmmaking. Um, and the goal is to fund regenerative storytellers um, to make regenerative films that will um, heal and inspire and challenge and uh, move us all forward. So you can check out uh, um, our work online. You can find it through my website, which is naomimcdougaljones.com. And that company is called Regen Media. Perfect. I was just about to ask you where people can find it. So thank you um, for doing that bit for me. Uh, so all that remains is for me to remind the listeners the book we've been discussing, The Wrong Kind of Women, Inside Our Revolution to Dismantle the Gods of Hollywood, um, published by Beacon. Naomi, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me.